0: I read a surprising statistic recently. It was from a study of the Catholic Church, and it said that more people come to church on Ash Wednesday in the world than any other day of the year. That's more people than Christmas Eve. That's more people than Easter Sunday. And frankly, that's downright shocking to me. But I was talking about it with a friend of mine, though, who pastors at a busy church in downtown Chicago, and he didn't seem at all that surprised. He said, you know, we spend a lot of energy trying to get folks to come through our doors. But oddly, it's Ash Wednesday every year when we welcome so many people whom we've never seen before. I wonder why, out of all the days of the church year, why on this day, the day on which we focus on our sin and mortality, why would that draw in the most strangers? Maybe it has to do with accessibility. In most faith communities, the imposition of ashes happens all day long, sometimes outside along the street corners. And I guess because of that there's a lot of people coming in and out of the church all day. Or maybe it's because the church has Ash Wednesday all to herself. There's no Santa or Easter Bunny or all the consumerism behind it. Nobody's waiting to watch the Ash Wednesday Peanuts special. There's no door buster sales at 4 a.m. on the first Sunday of Lent. Or outdoor decorations of sackcloth and ashes. Maybe it's because we have this all to ourselves. Ah, but I think it's something deeper. Why is it that we all seem to need Ash Wednesday so much? Even those who don't claim to be Christian, why do we crave these reflective moments to ponder our sin? We've got reminders of the ways in which we've failed around us every day. Why seek them out? But we do. I do. And I'm coming to believe that we do because we all desperately need a place to stop for just a little while, to take off the masks that we wear, if only for a moment, and tell the truth about who we are. To speak the truth about the ways in which we fail and miss the mark, and separate ourselves from God and each other. And Ash Wednesday, then, feels like a huge relief, because on every other day, I feel and. Perhaps you do too, an enormous amount of pressure to keep up the facade. To try with all my best effort to appear together, and perfect, and happy, and at peace, even when I'm not. We go to work every day wearing our titles like Boy Scout badges, informing the world that we know what we're doing, but secretly we're scared someone will find out that we really don't. Our families appear to the world like the picture of happiness. But the truth is, we live every day with the pain of disappointment, betrayal, and broken relationships. We tell the world that we are peaceful and purpose-filled, but inside we're scared and lonely And we wonder all the time about life's deeper meaning. But see, that's the thing about the truth. Truths that are denied won't go away just because we are not acknowledging them. We can try and ignore them, but they hover around us. They show up as anxiety. They wake us up at 2 a.m. And in my case, if there's some sort of truth about my life that I'm unwilling to speak or acknowledge, it never just leaves because I ignore it. And so we make our way to this quiet sanctuary on Ash Wednesday, where marked with the dust of our world, someone will meet our eyes in solidarity and say, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. And in that moment, no matter who we are or where we come from, we face, if only for a brief moment, the truth of our lives. This day allows us to begin Lent with that simple truth. An indisputable truth we try to ignore, a universal truth that gnaws at us, and that truth is you will die, and I will die. It's refreshing in a way that only truth can be, because we know that deep down we live in what Nadia boltz Weber calls a death-denying culture, which tries to tell us that we can live forever with the right combination of exercise, yoga, vacations, and elective surgery. And so thank God, Once a year we gather to speak the truth of how we sin and fall short and remind each other of our mortality. It's downright audacious that we just blurt it out, the very thing we're trying to pretend all year long that's not true. But as Nadia says, the thing about blurting out this kind of truth about ourselves is that after you do it, you can finally exhale. It's like the moment when you stop having to spiritually hold your stomach in. Because all the while that we are denying the truth, God is delighting in it. This is what we hear in Psalm 51. Indeed, you delight in truth deep within me and would have me know wisdom deep within. The backstory of Psalm 51 is one of the most painful stories of the Bible. It's a tale of adultery, political deceit, and misuse of power ripped straight from the headlines, as they say. Psalm 51 was written by King David. It was written after David was called out by the prophet Nathan. Maybe you remember how that story goes. King David had an affair with Bathsheba. While her husband Uriah, an officer in the army, was away at war. And Bathsheba became pregnant. And to cover up the affair, David schemes to have Uriah reassigned to the front lines where the fighting was most fierce. And sure enough, Uriah was killed in battle. David thinks he's gotten away with it all the affair, the murderous cover up. That is, until the prophet Nathan pays a visit and tells David that God knows the truth, the truth of what he's done, the truth about who he is. And David's response is startling. It's startling because it's so unlike anything we see in politics today. King David doesn't double down and deny wrongdoing. He actually confesses. He admits the sins he's committed. He acknowledges the pain that that his actions have caused. He speaks truth after a season of lies. It's not a trivial promise to give up chocolate. It's not a, a pledge to put on sackcloth and ashes either. David knows that God doesn't want groveling and sacrifices in the temple. God wants change. I think this is what the prophet Joel means when he says, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart. All your heart. Because you see, God knows that we piece our heart out to a lot of things that aren't God. Like David, we hide those parts that we're not proud of. But God wants all of it, that which we deem good and that which we deem bad. Because when we say someone does something wholeheartedly, it means usually that it's without reservation. It means that we return to God with every part of our heart. The hidden parts, the parts we keep only for ourselves, as well as the parts that we give and receive love without hesitation. Return to me, God says, the spaces of our hearts that burn for justice, as well as those pieces of our heart that have been shattered by injustice the pieces that have been broken, abandoned, hurt, and disregarded. We are to return to God every single part of our complicated human heart, to put down the facade and confess the truth about our hearts, because it is God alone who can gather all the broken pieces of our heart and make them whole. This is Lent to me, not competitive piety or trying to desperately make up for the fact that you're a terrible human being. Lenten prayers and practices are about changing the frequency. Lent is about spiritual exfoliation. Lent is about returning to God with all your heart. And how do we do it? Joel gives us the answer. Return, he says, with fasting and weeping and mourning. In other words, we are called to lament. Too often we think of lament as some sloppy display of emotion, tearing our clothes and covering ourselves in ash. But lament is first and foremost truth-telling. It begins by challenging the way things are. It claims that something is not right in the world. It helps us to name the lies that we've been living and participating in. In his book, The Prophetic Imagination, Walter Brueggemann says that people can only dare to envision a new reality when they've been able to grieve, to scream out, To let loose the cry that has been stuck in their throats for so long. That cry, that expression of grief, says Brueggemann, is the most visceral announcement that things are not right. Only then can we begin to nurture, nourish, and evoke a new consciousness, a new vision. We so desperately need a new vision for this world. I invite you to take a moment to be in touch with the grief that you carry right now. Each of us has a grief that we carry, sorrow that has perhaps gone unexpressed or been stifled or numbed. Each of us has been touched by pain and suffering at some time. And yet we live in a culture that tells us to move on, to get over it, to shop or drink our way through it, to escape it with the chatter of TV or social media so that we never have to face the dark, cold parts of our hearts. It's the same kind of attitude that forces us to answer, I'm fine, when others ask how we are, when we really aren't. Even the church at times tries to move us too quickly to a place of hope without fully experiencing the sorrow that pierces us. I was talking with a longtime member here who was recently going through a really difficult transition in her life and she said I always thought that if something like this were to happen to me that I would turn to the church but now that it has I'm not sure in whom I can confide can I safely share this part of my life with the church she's not alone in asking that question the prophet Joel says to blow the trumpet and call the assembly because lament is the work of the community, the church. Gathered together, we affirm that the pain you're feeling is valid, or community votes with its tears that there is suffering worth weeping over. Lament in that way is a form of resistance where we allow ourselves to be present to God and one another in our sin and our brokenness and resist the cultural imperative to be strong and hold it together. We stop pretending that everything's okay and put an end to worshiping the status quo. We move beyond sanctuary friendliness to vulnerable, authentic community. We move beyond welcome to belonging. This Lent, I invite you to take up the practice of truth-telling. I invite you to inhabit those places of grief, the sorrows you may have resisted up until now. Turn off the endless noise and chatter that distract you from those pieces of your heart that need tending. Make intentional space for your grief. Give permission for others in your life to express their sorrows. Help us to create an atmosphere in this church that encourages lament. Think of a friend or an acquaintance who has experienced a loss in the last few months and make time to ask them about their stories and let them know that they will be heard. Refuse to say that everything is fine. Practice truth-telling. Because ultimately, this truth-telling is the release of power, God's power, the power that is the soul-transforming call of repentance. You know, I used to think that repentance meant to feel so bad about being bad that you promise not to be bad anymore. But I now see that repentance is just returning to God again. There's a story about a certain Carmelite nun who was having difficulty with contemplative prayer because her thoughts would wander a thousand times during a 20-minute prayer session. And she was sure her teacher, Thomas Merton, would rebuke her for such a failure. And so she was surprised when instead, Burton said that her wandering thoughts were just 1,000 opportunities to return to God. That's what Ash Wednesday and Lent is. A thousand opportunities to return to God with all your heart returning again to the only thing that can save us, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, because the entirety of our heart is welcomed by God. We need not pretend that we have parts that are not really ours. We need not pretend that that we are more or less than we are. It is not the truth within us. Because as our psalm says, God delights, not in the facade of us, not in the self-improvement project of us, not in the, I'm giving up everything pleasurable for Lent so God will be impressed side of us. No, this God delights in the truth within us. That you are God's very own redeemed sinner, beloved in all your broken beauty, Because this is a God who never tires of forgiving, who never tires of loving his children, who will never despise our broken contrite hearts. To have a God who never leaves us, who receives every part of our complicated human hearts and welcomes it all back like a father running into the streets to welcome the prodigal son That's good news to me because I don't know about you, but I am prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. But Jesus sought me as a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And my broken, sinful, piecemealed heart wants to return again and again to the God whose love alone can make it whole. Let's go together. Welcome to Lent. Amen.